This episode contains strong language and mature subject... Well, immature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everybody! Happy Halloween! And it's Mimic. This is our favorite holiday out there. We absolutely love this entire month because we're all about horror. This month we've covered Barovia, the evil subclasses, quote-unquote evil, for wizards and clerics, and uh, the Undead Beholders. And the next two episodes even has the horror bleed over, pun intended, into November as we focus on character death, and then the templates for corrupting dragons with the Shadowfell or Undeath. And to top it all off, our year-long Call of Cthulhu event launched on the 13th. If you missed it, go check it out. If you remember on Halloween last year, Dave, Dan, and I sat down and went through our favorite great old ones and elder gods from the Cthulhu mythos. And so we've decided to have another go around with more warlock patrons for Halloween again. This time we're embracing everything chaotic and evil, and that means we're digging into what each of the eight demon lords has to offer in Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. Good so, times. Set aside your holy symbol and stop blessing that sacred water. It's time to break out the black candles, boil that cauldron of entrails, and wake up the virgin you've been keeping tied up in the closet for just such an occasion. <laughs> We've been peering into the abyss, oh fellow cultists, and now it's time to shed some light on exactly who is peering back. Welcome to another episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. This is another special, and it's going to focus on who the eight Demon Lords of 5th Edition are. And we're going to be given a brief breakdown of each of them all in one episode, as well as what they might have to offer for their followers. We're not going to be looking at Kachichi from Descent into Avernus, Radkos from Ravnica, or any of the crazy shit from Eberron or Theros, because they're not specifically mentioned as demon lords. This is meant to be a useful guide for a player who wants to be a warlock with a demonic patron, or for a dungeon master who's having trouble wrapping their brain about what these big baddies have to offer in the way of inspiration and or plot hooks. At some point we'll be doing a deep dive into each of these nasty bastards, but for this conversation we're going to be steering clear of the stat blocks, mechanics, and layer actions so we can focus on the who, the what, the why, and the how, and we'll try to stick to the info provided in fifth edition, but if we stray into other editions, we'll let you know what's technically not 5th edition canon, but is part of the D&D conversation. I'm Adam, and with me again are Dan and Dave. And before we get started, guys, I've got a couple of fun takeaways about the Demon Lords before we start digging into questions. Sure, sure. So, the Abyss is almost like its own crazy entity that spews forth demons and spawns evil chaos, but only the Demon Lords can warp the Abyss to their own whims. They have such powerful malevolence that they literally warp the environment around them. Regular demons can actually warp the Prime Material Plane in the same way. Instead of hacking and slashing the way to victory, they just have to sit still in one place for long enough to corrode reality and slowly form a link between their location and the Abyss. It can take years for an average demon to do it. It takes about a month for a demon lord. Whoa. Each demon lord publicly declares their own superiority and personally believes that they will be the ruler of the universe, much like myself. Huh. Their unbridled arrogance and ambition, much like Terry. Terry and I would be demon lords. You'll notice that I the monster. I would say one of you might be an archdevil more than a demon lord. That's Megan. Yeah, okay, yeah, that tracks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, in the monster manual, you'll notice that there's a specific kind of demon, like a uh, Baylor or a uh, Chasme. 
but the demon lords don't actually line up with any of them, right? They've all got a unique look. That's because according to Mordenkainen, experts and demonologists categorize demons by their general broad strokes. For example, all chasmes kind of resemble large horse-sized flies. But in reality, the number and size and coloration of their wings, legs, eyes, and other details all vary in the abyss. No two demons are actually alike. I, I, I really do like that because it, it when you're looking at the like hordes of... It, we're going to be talking about the Blood War at least a little bit during yeah. this episode. But like uh, when you really start to think of what a battlefield between devils and demons looks like... One's regiments and legions and everyone's wearing the same armor, the same armor and like represents the, you know, level of hell that they come from. The demons is just a slavering mass. Oh, of total insanity. Yeah. Right. So like you're not going to have one Garistro look the same as another Garistro. No. So because each demon actually has a unique form, um, that's why the demon lords look so distinct because... They're powerful and unique mutations that have survived long enough to have physically changed to the point where they are perfectly suited to rule their realm. So, here's something else. In previous editions, each demon lord controlled a specific level of the abyss, which is problematic because there's an infinite number of infinite levels. And it's hard to kind of wrap your brain around. The fact that there are borders and gates to every infinite level, and there are an infinite number of them, so how do we get numbers? Well, the the thing I look into here is a lot of the demon lords, you cannot cover the demon lord without covering his realm. They're kind of one and the same, right? Like, their their layer of the abyss is so intrinsic in how how they behave as well, just because they've spent millennia twisting it. Mm -hmm. So um, I know, like, Gratz has three levels, and and there's, there's, like, different... There. Each one's very unique. Each one's very area. unique with how they run. What's interesting, though, is that in 5th edition, they abandoned the numbering system and the idea of layers. Huh. It is just crazy random realms and expanses. Some sit on top of others. Um, so you go underground or you, you know, on top of a mountain or whatever crazy random shit that the abyss comes up with. But there's no longer the idea that Orcus is in number 62 or whatever. That no longer applies. That is like the one thing that I really appreciate about 5th edition is they have just taken so many of these useless numbers out. Yeah. So it actually says in Mordenkainen's, some scholars, I'm going to quote this, some scholars number and name the parts of the abyss, declaring that this demon lord or that rules a portion of the place. When your house is on fire, does it matter what the flames look like in each room? Should you bother to give them names? What's important is escaping and putting out any fire that clings to you. Yep. So, besides, the idea of a layer in the abyss is kind of misleading. It's considered now to be an ever-shifting, chaotic tangle of miniature worlds that are constantly changing and under eternal attack from the other demon lords, of which there are an infinite number. We just know about the eight that are closest to the prime material plane. Yeah. Before we dig into the specifics, I got a couple of questions. So let's grab your dice and we'll roll initiative. Do you want to hear the questions first? No. No? All right. Dave's just rolling dice. Ooh, we got a 17. We're going to change that. Nope. Never mind. No, you're going to throw the dice at me, you maniac. I got a three. I got a six. All right. Well, Dave, you're going to go first. How well versed were you in the lore of the lower planes before you sat down to do your research? None. Zero. Nada. Oh, really? You hadn't dug into it at all? Nope. Dan? I mean, I had cursory knowledge. Like you said, a lot of it is a uh, ever-shifting miasma, and that is true between edition to edition. 
So there's conversations you and I have had, Adam, where I've sat down and been like, hey, so there's this one little piece of lore and you're like, Dan, Dan, that was AD&D. That doesn't apply anymore. I'm like, oh, fuck. Okay, shit. Uh, yeah. Then, so uh, a lot of it was eye-opening, but a lot of it was also reaffirming previous previous beliefs that I had. I got to say that, okay, so I sat down a year ago to go through all of those single one-off specials I did. Yeah, you're still recovering from that. Yeah. And, um... The uh, you guys almost got some more Adam talking like this episode. Uh, more Adam ASMR. Yeah, which just makes Dan all sorts of tingly. But um, while I was doing the deep dive, I realized that a lot of the lore is in there for each of the different demons across all the different books. So you're piecing together more of an idea of what the abyss looks like and how these demons interact and fit with each other. So I kind of had an idea of what we were getting into with this. Um, but it's, I mean, there's always more out there in this, yeah. uh, to go over. Dave, I guess because you don't know much about it, you've never used the Blood War, the Lower Plains, the Abyss, or Demons in any campaigns? Yes, the, my guys have fought Demons, but they've been, you know, they opened up a, an iron flask and a Baylor popped out. Getting the flask. Right? Like, yeah. that level of stuff. So I've, I've dabbled, um, I had them fight a Kraken one time and they were easily defeating it, so... Demons, <laughs> right? Because that makes sense. Yeah, it was, it was a one shot. It didn't matter. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> right, like yeah, I used them, but I've never really gone down there. You know. Yeah. Okay. I've always used demons. Um, like I'm, I'm with Dave. When we do plane hopping in my groups, very rarely are we considering or um, even bringing up the concept of the blood war and like the politics of devils and demons. No, man. Like to me, I, I go very Dresden with it where like demons and devils are things that are pulled up to the main realm to serve a purpose, often begrudgingly. And if the whatever magician or mage or wizard or necromancer or evil spellcaster has brought them to this realm or warlock or warlock um we're just gonna circle it yeah 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 um they are often more hated than the target the warlock is setting up by the demon itself right so who dares awaken me from my slumber right like there's there's an arrogance to demon kind that that i like to play into and they're very much never the big bad in my in, in my campaigns they're always a weapon being used if anything I have never... Okay, I, did, I ran a Demon Keep, which has gone down in infamy as being one of the worst things I've ever done in D&D. Because it was just one thing after another. We never got into any of the flavor of it because it was this room has this kind of demon, this room has that kind of demon, and it was just SWAT team level for like eight sessions. Yeah. Through 108 rooms. That's a pretty fast progression. Oh, yeah, but these were 12-hour sessions, and they were kicking down doors and just blowing shit up. When they ran out of spell slots, they went back to a tavern and rested and then came back and did it again. It was a huge grind. But I did a lot of research and then I went into previous editions to get more kinds of demons and whatnot. And I homebrewed quite a bit. I I have used this all of the time and I never feel like I've used it properly. I really want a demon possession. I want to get into the corruption around the mm-hmm. surrounding area. I want it I want to get into the defiling and perversion and horror and chaos and all that. This is the thing that always uh, tweaks me is like when we have cults, they're either dragon cults or they're old god cults. Yeah. Very rarely do I have cults of Asmodeus aside, any sort of like arch devil and never a demon. You mean Asmodeus? Yeah, sure. Because he's not Mozart. Yeah, sure. Okay. 
So, no, you're right, though. Like, we never... No, it's Asmodeus. Uh, Asmodeus, Asmodeus. Oh, oh, oh. All right, so... Yeah, so I have. I feel like I've never used it properly. The yeah. idea that um, you can get into the really nasty, gross depths of this, and as we start to talk about the demon lords and the brutality and the weird corruptions behind some of them, it gets real dark real fast. Mm-hmm. And demons, I find, are just used as fodder a lot of the time, or a unique kind of one-off battle as we're waiting for the plot to catch up. Someone's away this week, so we're going to go over here to this fortress and wipe out the demon, right? Yeah. Uh, Dave, do you want to encounter these things, demons, as a player? If it can be done correctly. Uh, If I'm just going to walk into a room and all of a sudden there's a demon. Cool. Like... But I'm a fucking demon. Yeah, but I mean, if you can work it into, you know, we're demon hunters in a campaign and we're going through and we're tracking down this and that and like getting into like why specifically demons? Yes, I'm absolutely interested in that. If you're just going to have it as that random tier three, tier four uh, encounter, then uh, What's know, the point? I'm, not, I'm not super interested in that, right? Maybe it's like a one shot, but other than that, not really. Okay. Um, Dan? As, As a, a player, yeah. I, I desperately want to play with demons. And, like, I rolled for the last campaign I played long-term an investigator character. I would love... I And I, I name-dropped it earlier. I've been devouring the Dresden books for the first time. I've done this deep of a dive in them. So the idea of playing, like, a demon hunter character who is going through and, like, within a city or within something else killing demons... I'm I'm down with it. The fuck are you giggling about that? I am the greatest demon hunter in the world. <laughs> uh, let's hope nobody got that reference. Um, yeah, I would absolutely love to do this as as a player, but I really, really, really want to dig into like the knowledge cleric priest for this kind of thing, or the warlock that is going in um, to kind of sink his teeth into. We're gonna get into. Actually, that's my next question. Mordenkind of Stomophos has a breakdown of what to give cultists for each of the demon lords. Normally, this is meant for beefing up your NPCs to make the cultists a little bit stronger. But would you give them, en masse in general, to a player character? Because they can be pretty strong. If not, how would you incorporate this kind of demon cult into a backstory? Like into your warlock's backstory? So a lot of what it will do is give them modifiers to their ability scores, right? Yeah. Would you allow like that plus four to break the 20 threshold? I would say absolutely. This, yeah. This is outside yeah. of your standard. Right. So from that aspect, yeah, I would give this to my players because there's very few opportunities to do that. And I know I've got a lot of players that want to and are willing to take the negative side of that as well. So... It, it's it opens up a little bit more something that's just like the forbidden territory it'll make them feel special for like the 30 seconds that they want to feel special for right but um i mean the the spells that you get from them are uninspiring i mean they're they're i mean they track yeah they do they're, they're on point but they're not fancy new spells like your casters are going to get them anyways your warlock may not yeah i know but if you depending on the pact you get yeah, you get a couple of different cantrips and stuff, but uh, like there's, I don't know. It, again, it, it it's nice if maybe you're. I know because we're we're talking warlocks. Like if if you had a non warlock character, you know, become a cultist and was able a non spell casting 
class kid, I guess that would be kind of neat. Frankly, if they're going to become a cultist, I'm going to make them, hey, you want to do this, you're taking a level in Warlock. I've done that twice. Yep. In my campaigns. Like, if you want to go down the story beat, I would like it to have some sort of mechanical impact beyond, now you know two spells and get a modifier bonus. Here, take a level in Warlock, choose your pact, here you go, right? You are you are now with you are now operating as a warlock with a fiendish patron. Now, if they're infiltrating, they don't get it. No. But if they straight up believe this shit and start praying to their patron for power and whatnot, like a cleric would almost, then yeah, you're taking levels of this. Sure, I like the idea of some of them some of the, the demon lords will um, present themselves in a different light to try to get people to work for them without no, them knowing it. Yeah. Like you could really play around with that with the player options. Yeah. Oh, Hey, look at all these fun boons you get. <laughs> for, for me, I, yes, I, I, I like these things. Um, I church is just socially acceptable cult worship. So words I never thought I'd hear from you of all people. So, the difference if, between a church and a cult is your PR department. Yeah, honestly, yes. Uh, specifically in D and D, I think that's yeah, true. in D and D, yeah, we're. I am a Christian. We're we're just yeah, skirting an issue here. This is not Anyways. yeah. This is not the same for like Judaism versus Scientology. Yeah. Don't sue us. Yeah. So, um, there for me, the celestial patron does not match the good side. I would like to see. The amount of depth put into the Demon Lord boons, the uh, four cults, and everything else, I would like to see that much work put into the good gods well, as well, or no even other good patron, level. No other patron gets this Nothing. level of detail except for the devils, which is still just the fiendish patron. Which is just what, the lawful evil ones. What yeah. about the Theros gods? No, they, they give boons to their followers. They give yep. boons, but but the the boon system in Theros is completely different to okay. this, right? Uh, I want to see something like this that I could give to my players. Now, for a good player going with the fiend warlock thing and justifying how your good character grew up in a cult of I don't know, say Baphomet, who's all about savagery, brutality, and murder. I'm not gonna let you get away with that shit. Um, I like the idea of your character. Um, and I, I've talked about this as a character idea before for one of the episodes. Having been raised in that society, thinking that everything your your group is doing is good, but that's because you are in that heavy, thick, opaque bubble of that thing, where everyone's like, "Oh yeah, no, we wor- we worship Baphomet. He's a benevolent god as long as we kill people, and killing people's okay because Baphomet says it's okay." Yeah, you've and been raised within. You've been, been raised indoctrinated, and then that bubble has burst, and your character is now adventuring and trying to learn how the world really works. That's intriguing, but then, but you have to do it well, and you have to be on the same page as your DM and the rest of your party. Because what's going to suck is if you're sitting across the table of that lawful, stupid paladin who's all like, "Oh, you looked at that thing wrong." Well, that's it. You're going to jail. No, man, we're a party. So, like, I, I'd like to see something like that. Um, play out and I want to see options for the good gods along the same line as these demonic boons you find in Mordenkainen's. Well, interestingly enough, the demon lords are not gods. No. They are a step below. Th- they are, they have lesser deific level is is what... Um, Asmodeus has. is specifically trying to become a god. That is his overall arc, right? So, yeah. And we see that with a lot of the archdevils and demon lords is that they're Really trying to attain godhood sometimes. It, sometimes the demon lords can't stay focused. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the uh, I 
I look at this these mechanical boons and I say, I really like it. Plus four is a lot. Maybe you get a plus one in tier one and then a plus two in tier two. And as you continue going forward, it powers up with you. Well, it does say up to a plus four. Yes. Um, my problem with your scenario, Dan, of breaking free of it is I'm going to start you with a plus four and depower you over time. Oh, that, no. That feels I, like I, I wouldn't depower you as you're starting to realize these boons have been given. I, 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 I disagree with the idea that a, a boon that can be given can easily be, be taken away. Well, you got to keep in mind that the way that warlocks work is you are actively siphoning off every time you cast a spell or use your packed magic. Yep. You are siphoning off power that is being granted actively right now in this moment from whatever your patron is. So if you are praying to Orcus, right, and you do all these dark rituals and you get all these boons and then you start dicking around, he's going to cut off that power supply. Uh, he's going to kill you. And that's how he's cutting off that power supply. If you're worth noticing. I don't think he's going to bother to put out a hit on you by level 3. By level 12, he's probably... Oh yeah, probably. And and if, if it is something that's coming in the earlier levels counteract the removal with another thing right like i i just find it hard to give a plus four to strength at level one. Oh, i wouldn't give it at level one that's why it's up two, right i would yeah that's I, why i'm saying it's a graduated system yeah, yeah. and unless you're going to strip it away from the person and have them in early early sessions have them figure out that oh shit i've gone down the bad path and then they're going to this this is how i justify a six level warlock you know, 14 level paladin, right? Because they're technically a warlock for six levels and they learn better and they take an oath, right? Yeah. So anyways, let's get to the nitty gritty. Let's get to the meat of it. Let's jump into some of the demon lords. So um, we have each selected one for round one. Uh, let's see who is going to go first. Let's roll into them. I got a three. I got a nine. I got a seven. I'm going last. Dan, you're up first. Who do you have for us? Um... I guess we're starting alphabetically because I'm starting with Baphomet. Um, Baph we're absolutely not going alphabetically. We're not going alphabetically. It just so happened that the dice turned that way. But um, Baphomet is the first of the demon uh, lords alphabetically purely. He is the goat-headed god, uh, or, or sorry, the goat-headed prince of beasts, uh, the horn king, or the demon lord of the minotaur. Was the Horned King your nickname in college, Dave? Um, so a little bit about him before we get into it. Uh, he rules um, the area of the Abyss called the Endless Maze, which is, as you think of it, it is a infinite maze. And quite often he will have his followers just drop people in the maze. So the Minotaur guy has a big maze? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, however, in the center of this, there is a tower called the Litten which is a recreation of something called the Tower of Science from previous editions. Basically, the Tower of Science was an area in the Abyss where uh, demons were created. Yeah, he Baphomet likes to experiment. He does. He very much likes to experiment. Um, he appears as a 12-foot-tall, monstrous, and raw minotaur. Like, you said he was goat-faced, but is he not bull-faced? Um, he is... Both at the same There's, time. He, every, like I said earlier, every one of these has weird mutations because they've been living for so long. It's, it's not really either bull or goat. It's, it's just... It's analogous to both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he wields a uh, glaive named the Heart Cleaver, which is a fantastic thing that is said to be able to cut the uh, ribbons between reality. Pretty sure Heart Cleaver was the youngest child on Leave it to Beaver? Uh 
no, probably not. Okay. The subject matter of 1950s uh, family programming probably did not have Baphomet, especially since in the 1950s, Baphomet was a real world concern. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so around the whole um, occultist movement in the early 1900s, uh, late 1800s, really to the mid 1900s, um, Baphomet in our real world was seen as the um, the embodiment of the balance of magic because of all of his little aspects that he has, he was uh, where magic would be drawn from. And the church being all magic is evil, then sidled Baphomet in with what we get with the devil and Beelzebub and Satan. So all of that kind of came together. Um, the Knights Templar were said to have been torn down and dismantled because they worshipped Baphomet, Baphomet, which is... Interesting. He is where the whole idea of the inverted pentacle comes from, which is the five-pointed upside-down star. And the goat face. With the goat face yeah. inside. That yeah. goat face is Baphomet. Oh, okay. I didn't, I didn't put yeah, those two that's together. The, that's the connection there. Cool. So um, he was always said to have been a source of magic and everything else. So, of course, D&D &D took that idea and decided to be like, no, Minotaurs, because he's got horns, y'all. Sure, why not? Yeah, why not, right? So, um, in terms of his entire dogma about him, uh, about him, he is all about brutality, savagery, creation for destruction. That is what he wants. Is are pentacles still a thing in D and D, or did they abandon no? That? They're well, they're they're holy symbols, but sure. that's that's about all they go. Sidebar: um, If you have an inverted pentacle, go see your doctor. God damn it, Dadum. Anyways, so. Uh, his uh, holy symbol, actually, because he he is listed uh, often as a either he bounces that line of lesser deity just in his power um, as a circle, uh, circular maze awash in blood. That is his kind of holy symbol that comes along. With That's him. the icon that the warlocks will have draped over their altars and stuff. Yes, and a warlock of Baphomet is going to be the most murder hobo, murder hobo that ever murdered hoboed. Oh, I'm going to challenge that in a minute. Yeah, probably. Um, in terms of, uh, his cult, which I guess now is a good point, um, he's typically followed by, surprise, surprise, minotaurs. Um, a lot of the dumber giants follow him as well, in terms of your ogres and your hill giants. Do you think an evil satyr would? Yes. Especially a, uh, malicious one. Like one that just wants to roll around in pools of blood. Yeah. He would just, we're going to a blood orgy. Yay! Yay! Um, so any thrall that has pleased, uh, Baphomet would be granted lordship over a section of the endless maze. And those who didn't were, um, eaten. As you would expect. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of that. There's going to be a lot of that. Um, the, so what cults would do is they would often drug, strip, butt naked and drop victims into a maze. This is even real world. They would have a maze in a cellar and they would just drop people in um, and they would chase them and hunt them as a ritual to Baphomet, screaming and howling to disorient, uh, to disorient the victim and strike fear into their heart. This is something that the cult of Baphomet would do. Um, and one of the boons that, uh, that is not really written as an actual mechanical boon is being a cultist of Baphomet and gaining his features slowly turns you into a minotaur. Cool. And this, this is where we get the idea of where minotaurs actually come from. Oh, I thought it was when, you know, never mind. No, not, not when a bull and a human. No, not quite. No? That. No. 
Um, in terms of his creation, he was thought to have once been a man who thought the gods were cattle. So the gods were like, uh, no, you're the one that looks like a bull and banished him to a maze. Sure. Yeah. Um, he has been imprisoned multiple times because he has actually grown to love this curse that has been put upon him. Um, and with this love of this curse, he keeps on toying with the wrong people. So he's been imprisoned by Orcus, Gratz, Yanogu. He has been... He doesn't win a lot of fights. He does not win a lot of fights because he is just all attack all the time. Well, okay, to be fair, he slaughters mortals left, right, and center. Yes. It, when he gets into fighting his brethren, he kind of gets a smackdown. Speaking of his brethren, his most hated demon lord is Yanogu, who's also about savagery and brutality a little bit. Yep. Um, we'll get to him later, but they they warred for so long that they eventually formed an alliance, which uh, was to battle the elves, Bahamut, and uh, an alliance of the good dragons. And when that failed, both of them looked at each other and went, this was your fault. And that reflamed their uh, hatred of each other, which has lasted to this day. He is said to have created the Garistro, the Bulazau, and from past editions, the Gors and Ankashars. Which are more, if you have a demon with horns, it's probably from Baphomet. I just picture him having a whole bunch of just horns hanging on the wall in his like Tower of Madness. And he's just like, nope, here, this one gets this one, and that one gets that one. And who put antlers here? Oh, cool. We use that anyways. New nipples, right? Like, it's that kind of stuff. Anyways, um, we're going to move on to the boons that he gives now. Um... He gives an increase to both strength or wisdom, um, up to a plus four. Um, he gives an ability to his lesser accolades called Unerring Tracker, which is a bonus action. You connect to a creature that you can see within range for one hour. You know the direction and distance of that creature. Cool. Okay. Um, you as a higher up acolyte and as you grow, he of course gives you more of these. You get an ability called Incite the Hunters, which is once per rest, comes back on a short rest or a long rest. Each ally within 30 feet of the caster that has the, um, unerring tracker ability gets a reactionary free weapon attack against the, uh, target. Wow. Yeah. So if you have a full party of Baphomet worshippers that have these abilities... Could really spiral out of control. For yeah, that, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, and then the ultimate ability, I mean, you would kind of need this for the Lord of Mazes, Labyrinthine Recall, which is where you perfectly remember any path you have taken. Yeah, the Minotaurs traditionally have that in D&D as well. That's relatively useless mechanically. I mean, it sounds really cool, but how often you run into that? Exactly. Um, so if there is a game-breaking ability that they give, it is this uh, ability to kind of group everybody together and have this one massive, like, everybody attack in one turn ability. Um, if I was to put him in a unique campaign, um, I would want to do a prison break style arc that features Baphomet and have the prison be labyrinthine in its nature. Yeah, okay. He's like the warden of the prison. And, yeah. Yeah. Right? And, I mean, this might not be a full 1-20 to 20 campaign, but for a 3-shot, a 4-shot, would work perfectly. And then you get to have the one guy, guy who has the map of everything tattooed to him, who ends up being a cultist of Baphomet. Okay. Right? Um, if you're a warlock and you follow Baphomet, I mean, you're packed of the blade. You think so? You're not going packed of the um, pack of chain. I, I, I find it weird to go Baphomet packed of chain. Unless you're familiar as a goat... If it is a demonic-looking black goat. 
Yeah, but I mean that that doesn't hold the same uh, message that he wants. Like maybe it's a bloodthirsty goat. You have a bloodthirsty goat. But like Baphomet's all about brutal brutality and slaughter and goring things. Give him pack to the blade. You get you get your polearm mastery. This would be your warlock or polearm mastery because the glaive. A lot of everything he does is polearm kind of uh, weapon attacks and, and things. So going uh, pack to the blade works with him. Um, however, tome I guess could work as well. If we really wanted to go down that route, if you are going with a diviner or transmutation, you pull on that creation or that maze and and foretelling aspects of them. Every pact will work for every demon lord in one way or another. Yeah, Yeah. but I think your blade works. Blade works better than the others for him. So yeah, that's 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 Baphomet. It makes me uncomfortable when you make eye contact and say polearm. Dave, you're up next. Polearm. Ah, fuck. All right, so the for the next one, I've got Frazer Blue. I'm sorry, Frazer Blue. Gazuntite, right? So I actually made a warlock once, and this was the patron that I chose. Now I played like four sessions uh, with your brother Dan, yep. and I just wanted to hear him struggle to say through Fraz saying this. Blue. So fans of the podcast will know I sometimes have trouble with words. Yeah. Um, that is a genetic family trait. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that was really the only reason, and we didn't explore it at all. So this was kind of, although I was familiar with the name, this was interesting for me to you know get into it. Now, uh, he is known as the Prince of Deception and the Demon Lord of Illusion. Okay? Okay. I thought it was pertinent to bring up that he's a CR24. All of these guys are over 20. Oh, yeah. Easily, right? The lowest is 23. But the interesting thing is that he's a CR24 when he's in his lair. Okay? I don't think you're really going to find these guys outside of their layers. Um, some of, out of the abyss, you will. Maybe they tend to. There's so many incursions, and they are smart and powerful enough. Yes. to not get caught off guard. Sure, but I think it's important to make that, you know, make it clear that these guys are built to fight in their on their own turf. Yeah. Right? The other thing to keep in mind too is that when you are a demon and you are killed on any other plane except your own. So when you're anywhere except the abyss and you're killed, you just go back to the abyss. If you're killed in the abyss, you die. No coming back. Yeah. So I'm sure that there's an asterisk for a couple of them, but um, Frazer Blue would would be smart enough to know that when there's a big incursion, he's heading to the Prime Material Plane, chase me here, fight me here. If you're going to beat me, I'll just come back. Yeah. Right? Like, it's weird that they all get this kind of eject button, right? Yes. The reason that I bring up specifically in the lair is because being the Prince of Deception, he is known to make himself look like things that would be appealing to people that he's going to try to get to join his cult. Which is good because his his real form is... Uh, yeah. he is not, he's not much of a looker. Hey, no, hey he's thick. N- no, no. No, oh, yes. He's, he looks like a gargoyle with mutton chops. Okay? That's true. Yeah, right? The um, picture in the picture in the in Mordenkind looks like he's sitting on the can. It's yeah. He's squeezing one out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See a look at his face too, like ah, minor illusion. <laughs> <laughs> I have helped that warlock today. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> no, he's 
It says he's 12 feet tall. He's got big wings. Uh, he's really oh, so a major muscular. Check. But he's kind of greeny and brown. He's got a swampy look to him. He does look a little bit like Man-Thing from the comics. Yes, he really does. Yeah. He also kind of looks like the uh, the implementation of Cthulhu a little. Like he's got that Cthulhu vibe to him. It's, it's, he's, it's got, the, he's got the tentacles. He's got the wings. He's got the It's not texture. tentacles. Those are hair. That's hair. Well, still. Yeah. He's got long dangly bits hanging off his face. Dan? Is yeah. That, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Got to have it. <laughs> so again, <laughs> you're editing this one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so, like I said, he can take on other forms. Uh, he likes to do this to pick be- up tricks at the bar. If they're demon hunters that think they're doing good, that he can get them to then not do good and then corrupt their souls and take them. Yes. No. I expect that he's got a number of Cambians and Succubi and whatnot that are part of his minions. Those that Gratz hasn't claimed for himself, I can yeah. see. Yeah. Well, he's really got two different kinds of cultists. It's those that um, he has tricked into uh, worshipping him and joining his cult. Uh, that he, you know He's corrupted through deception. And those that are con artists, illusionists, deceivers that are looking for his power kind of thing, right? Uh, you're going to find him. His lair is in the city of Zoregmalok. Of course. Right? Yeah. Rolls off the tongue. Yeah, which is in the realm like dangly of parts. Hollow's Heart. Yeah. Not even touching it. Keep going. <clears throat> which is just a featureless plane of white dust. I know a lot of people who would love to go there. <laughs> but that one actually fucking broke me. <laughs> yeah. I just have an image of like some of the people I know who are Dave Strands going, Whee! Frass is the best. <laughs> just one really fucking tweaked out gnome just peeking his head up out of the white dust, just fucking twitching. Frass or blue doesn't actually exist. It's just the sound of this one gnome on a coked out rage. Frass or blue. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, so, like I said, the city that, that he lives in, where his lair is, is Zoreg Melok. Yep. Uh, this is just a large, essentially circular city that's. Got giant adamantine walls, and it's got razors and hooks and everything on the top, and it's somewhere that Terry would probably like to go. Yeah, it looks like a piece of dance furniture. Exactly. Only a city. Okay. Right? Um, <clears throat> but if you were to worship him, some of the boons you would get, uh, you can get a plus four to wisdom or charisma, or both. Yep. Okay. Uh, for his spells, he does minor illusion, invisibility, and disguise self, and... Uh, he, the ability that he gives you is called Liar's Eye, which I always want to call Layer's Eye because it's just, sure, I'm yeah. illiterate, uh, which gives you advantage on insight and perception checks and allows you to detect illusions within 15 feet. That's not as powerful as I'd want for him. I mean, it's good. Don't get me wrong. That is that is good, but I just expected some combat for that. <sighs> no, he's more about, you know, puppet and master in the shadows no, pulling the string. Right? I get it. And they can't all be combat related, but I mean, a lot of them are. So yeah, I was, most I was surprised. of them are. Yeah. And he looks like one huge beefcake. I figured that he'd be able to pack a punch. Well, that's the same. well and of course he can. He's CR 24, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, like, he, he does look like he should be a fighter and not a, a lover. Know, illusionist. That's what I said. Same thing. It's illusions, Michael. 
Uh, but for him, I would probably pick Pact of the Tome. Uh, you're just going to get more of the illusion kind of spells out of him. Yeah. Uh, maybe some conjuration, depending on what you want to do with it. I like Pact of the Chain too for spy purposes. Just yeah, sure. But yeah. Blade doesn't really Blade doesn't fit really fit this fit, one. No. Uh, it's just he's not about direct conflict. He's more you know in the shadows pulling strings. Um, if I was going to put him in. Uh, into a campaign, he would be the big reveal at the end. These guys would be working towards doing good and getting almost there and then realizing that they've actually been working for this demon lord the whole time. I think he's the closest one to a schemer that we have. Yeah. Yeah, he really feels that way and it would, would be not very difficult to use him that Orcus way. is a bit of a schemer as well. Yeah, but I'm sure that um, Asmodeus has got his eye on Fraser Blue pretty closely because if anyone's going to pull some shit, it'll be that guy. Yeah. Right? We know that Grass is over there getting his fuck on, and Demon Gorgon's just masturbating in a pile of peanut butter, right? Like, he knows the deal with most of them, but Frazzar Blue is up to shit. The the thing about Frazzar Blue that I really like is... Are we just going to buzz past that? Yes. Masturbating in a pile of peanut butter? It's Demogorgon. Okay. It makes sense. It's just te- uh, tentacles and baboon faces and peanut butter. <laughs> yeah, that- <laughs> It's all fair. It's also <laughs> Dan eating breakfast on Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's all over my face. Uh, anyway, so we have <laughs> we have in in Fred's Herb Blue's whole breakdown mention of one of my favorite places, which is Castle Greyhawk. Um, and and he sits underneath he for years. And in AD and D, he was a central figure where he a lot of. The uh, modules would be built around like Frazer Blue and the Staff of Power, and you have the the Staff of Seven Parts or whatever it is, right? The Rod of Seven Parts. The Rod of Seven Parts is Frazer Blue's staff that um, he was imprisoned by the Council of Eight for his staff. So they took it, and now all he wants is his staff back. So every time that he goes and hunts one of these guys down, he has a staff meeting. Next up on the list is one of my personal favorites, and I have gone off at length about this guy repeatedly throughout the podcast episodes. It's uh, Yinagu, a.k.a. the Beast of Butchery, and he is all about eating your enemies. Everything for him... I'm really glad you said enemies. (laughs) Everything for him is about predators and prey, and he has an incredible bloodlust. He wants destruction, slaughter, and mayhem, and the only way to survive his insatiable wrath and hunger is to fight as one of his minions like the Knolls do. You don't meet Yinagu unless it's to fight him, although he can sometimes get bored and ignore some creatures. Um, you don't want to fight him anyway, though, because if Knolls resemble hyena men with the hard-on for destruction, then Yinagu looks like a gigantic 14-foot-tall Knoll with the aesthetics of a heavy metal gladiator version of a Knoll dreamt up by a fever dream by someone with a phobia of teeth. He's covered in dirty fur and tight leathery skin, and his rictus smile is terrifying. His body is draped in breastplates and shields that have been lashed to his body with chains and the skins of his foes. He prefers to use his teeth and hands to pull his victims apart, but... He can summon his three-headed magical flail to his hand, ladies, if needed. He calls it Butcher. And it is absolutely devastating. He doesn't reign in the abyss so much as rampage like a destructive storm of violence and hunger across the realms, but he does have a lair called the Death Dells. The Death Dells is essentially a massive hunting ground without vegetation and with very few indications of civilization. He often captures mortals and releases them here so he can hunt them. The only creatures allowed in this part of the abyss are gnolls, hyenas, and ghouls. Yinagu is unpredictable, full of rage, 
always starving for more flesh of his enemies, and spawning gnolls and gnoll-like creatures in his wake is normal. Thousands of years ago, he changed the world forever by spawning the first gnolls on the material plane in the aftermath of his horrible destruction. One of the things about him that is often overlooked is the fact that he's not just all about destruction, although that's his main number one key point. He also loves to cause fear, sorrow, and despair by destroying beloved things of the victims before he kills them. So he's, he's a nice guy. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't actually have a lot of cultists um, like some of the others do because he's, he's just far too fucking brutal to yeah. follow. Yeah. yeah. Um, he has, of course, gnolls that follow him and lucrotas, which are horrible monstrosities um, in Volo's Guide to Monsters. You can look them up. But anyone else is probably an outcast of society that's been banished by civilization for not playing by the rules. Every cult of Yunagu acts more like a pack of gnolls with every passing day, no matter what creatures make up its ranks. They're imbued with the demon lord's hunger, which makes them cannibalistic and hyper-violent. Violent, not hyper-violent. They... I've heard of ultraviolet. <laughs> it's a good movie. Yeah. No, it isn't. They <laughs> operate on the on the promise that every time they destroy and consume a victim, they get closer to Yinagu, and then often start to resemble gnolls after a time, usually by hunching over and filing their teeth down to points, but in time they will start to sprout fur and get taller and their arms will get longer. Mm-hmm. Much like Baphomet's minions yeah, yeah. started to change. Interestingly, the cultists of Yinagu have a fight-on-site mentality with the cultists of Baphomet, attacking with the same level of animosity as the two demon lords display when they fight each other. Yeah. So, yeah, they're not friends. No, and like it's, it's gang warfare, like all the way through the ranks. Cultists get a plus four to strength and dexterity, and a negative four to intelligence and charisma. This is important for warlocks. Yes. Because um, charisma is your spellcasting modifier. This is going to cripple you as a spellcaster. They automatically gain Tasha's Hideous Laughter, Crown of Madness, and Fear as signature spells. If they are particularly devoted, they get moderately fun bite attack called Gnashing Jaws and the ability to Rampage, which lets the cultist move up to half their speed and use a Gnashing Jaws attack, as long as they've dropped a creature to zero hit points uh, with a melee attack. Cult leaders also get something called Aura of Bloodthirst, which lets any creature with the Rampage trait use Gnashing Jaws as a bonus a-, a bonus action instead of an action, as long as they're within 10 feet of the creature with the aura. Jeez. Yeah. So those plus four bonuses are huge, but the minus four bonuses are crippling. You're going to have to be very min-maxed if you're going to use a build that uses Yinagu. Honestly, the, na- the Gnashing Jaws doesn't seem that useful at first glance. It takes an action, only uses your proficiency modifier to attack, and deals 1d4 plus strength. But the Rampage, on someone who's multiclassed into Warlock for a level of 2 from Barbarian or Monk, this becomes a whole different story. Oh yeah. The Madnesses of Yinagu are all themed for bloodshed and hunger, but they seem awfully familiar. I hunger for the death of others, and I'm constantly starting fights in the hope of seeing bloodshed, and I keep trophies from the bodies I have slain, turning them into adornments. These just seem like standard murder hobo parties to me. Yeah. Um, some of the other madnesses involving cannibalism and anarchy are fun, but there's like a 40% chance of nothing changing for the party. I like that sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would incorporate Ianagu through his cults um, in a storyline where the cults are slowly getting more and more brazen as time goes on. You start off with one murder, then a whole, you know, 
family or business is just slaughtered and then suddenly there's a, a riot down the street and they just keep getting more and more no-like until there are people just screaming mad through the streets almost like 28 days later. Yeah. Right? Like they would start to become almost a force of nature as they continue to turn. But I mean, I picture like festivals of slaughter, feasts of blood, things like that for, for cultists. Yeah. And and Baphomet's going to have quite a lot of similarities there. But I feel like Baphomet is more about um, uh, is more about strategy and experimentation. Yinagu is the demon lord that gets up to the Prime Material Plane all the time and never lasts long because people have to stomp that shit out right now because he just goes on a fucking warpath. Yeah. You see the smoke in the horizon and then suddenly the horizon is smoke, right? When he's on the Prime Material Plane, he's going. And so everybody musters troops and knocks him back to the abyss. He gets pissed off and tries to find a new way in. We talked about demon lords taking a month to corrupt the area to create a portal. You know who doesn't have a month. He's, he's, he's not around for a month. No, he's here for 72 hours to just burn as many castles as possible and then move on. Um, I mean, Pact of the Blade, right? Oh, yeah. I could sense. see you do Chain if you got a hyena. Definitely not Tome. No, not so much. Although, I really do like his three signature spells for him. Um, but uh, but no, for the most part, eh. Tasha's Hideous Laughter is fun. Yep. Crown of Madness is fun. And uh, fear makes a lot of sense for him as well. He's a gnarly looking motherfucker. So, that's round one. We've done the first three. Let's roll dice again before we move on to the next one. All right. I've missed twice now. I got a 10. I got an 11. I got an 8. Oh, sweet. I get to go again? Yep. Oh, boy. We're sorry. Get comfortable. So, my next one. Dan, do you know how to pronounce this? The uh, the lo- demon lord of slime and ooze. Oh, uh, Jubilex. Dweeblex. Dweeblex. No, it's Jubilex. Dweeblex. It's Dweeblex. Y'all are weird. Why? <clears throat> Am I just not? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's an oh. I in there. Dweeblex. Dweeblex. Yeah. yeah. yeah so. uh, I had the I after the B. I just can't. Uh, read yeah, Jubilex. Yeah, I'm yeah. just illiterate. We've been over this. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Dan can't speak. Jubilex is the demon lord of oozes known as the Faceless Lord and the Oozing Hunger. That's the noise he makes. And is thought <laughs> of to be the being that is personally responsible for the existence of all oozes. Thanks, buddy. You're the best. Jubilex is you. neither male nor female and seems to merely meander, leaving a trail of slime that coalesces into new oozes in time. It's translucent, bubbling slime that swirls with greens and blacks and has a multitude of red eyes floating and moving within its mass. It can raise up to form a 20-foot hill, lashing out with pseudopods to drag its victims into its mass. Those that are enveloped are quickly broken down to their base elements and assimilated into the organic mass. There is evidence that every ooze is a direct connection to Dweeblex, and it sees and knows everything that its minions sees and knows. Some believe that Dweeblex and its minions will one day overrun the entirety of the universe, reducing everything into an ooze-infested wasteland. It doesn't bother with plots or schemes or politics or relationships and only exists to envelop, consume, digest, absorb, and then spawn minions. It only absorbs living matter, but its minions are famous for being able to corrode and destroy inanimate objects made of inorganic matter. It inhabits the same realm of the abyss as Zugtomoy, known as Shadakla, and Dweeblix's main layer there is called the Slime Pits. Of course it is. 
According to the book, only the batshit crazies to batshit crazies worship Dweeblix, and those who offer themselves to it get engulfed and transformed into vaguely humanoid sentient oozes, which I believe are oblexes. Okay, yeah. The flesh and blood parts of their bodies are added to Dweeblix's undulating bulk as the demon lord takes its time digesting and savoring their identities. You can imagine that Dweeblix has only a few cultists, and they're almost always delusional as fuck. That's not in the book. That's that's me. Uh, they, I was about to ask, how many U's did they use to spell that? Uh, just enough for you. Uh, they preach of a day when a tide of slime and oozes will swallow the world, and they believe that aligning with Dweeblix will spare them from consumption. They tend to live underground, where they keep stables of oozes and slimes as guards, and use traps to capture unwary people to feed the oozes in a ritual that will imitate what they expect will happen to anyone who doesn't follow Dweeblix's rule during the apocalypse. They actually prefer the company of oozes to people and slowly build up a resistance to slimes, but at an incredible cost. Here's the mechanical breakdown. Cultists get a plus eight to constitution and a minus eight to intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. Oh. oh. The signature spells are grease, web, and gaseous form, all lesser followers gain a trait called liquid movement. As an action, they can move up to 20 feet through a space as tight as one inch in diameter. It has to end its turn in a space that can hold its true size, or it's going to take five force damage and get slurped back out to the original space. The most devout cultists also get the slimy organs trait, ladies, which gives resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage from non-magical attacks. In addition to this trait, any time the cultist is reduced to zero hit points, or takes a critical hit against it, every creature within five feet takes acid damage equal to the cultist number of hit dice. Yikes. The options on Dweeblix's madness table are interesting only if you're willing to embrace the role-playing aspect of the game. It's things like, I must consume everything I can, and that kind of seems problematic. Uh, other things like, my personality is irrelevant, I'm defined by what I consume. I consume. That feels like fun for a session, but would get old kind of quickly, as far as I'm concerned. The madnesses that focus on obtaining and hoarding possessions just sounds like, well, rogues. Yeah, okay. Um, and I'm actually 100% okay with all of this. That uh, that makes a really unique and bizarre martial class. If you were to take one level of Warlock to get a bunch of this kind of boon stuff, but it tanks your mental stats, but you get plus 8 to con and can move through tight spaces and can cast gaseous form and grease, and you're one fuck of a monk. Wow, yeah. Um, I desperately want to send a party to Shadakla, the realm of, of spores and fungus and slime and ooze. It sounds so gross, and I don't know anywhere else in D&D that has this. So There is a plane of cysts in older editions. Yeah, we haven't. We don't have that in 5th edition. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I, I think you warp in on, onto a gonad. Or something, I don't know. Uh, it's in the Shackled City Adventure Path. I know that. Uh, as far as Tome, Chain, and Blade, um, I don't know which pact to go for this. Chain. Yeah, but there is no ooze or slime familiar. Make one. I, I guess. And give it a little leash. I, I'm thinking maybe things Would like... Would just be able to slide out of it? Huh? With the leash? No, like, uh, for some reason or other, the leash is the one thing that controls this, like, slug. You, you just, have a slug that's that's really gross and really cool and I like it but I'm thinking tome actually so that I can get things like um, uh, what's the poisonous cloud 
right? And some of the more toxic and poison level yeah, spells okay. as well. Um, but again, minus eight to charisma. What warlock is going to pick Dweeblex? Right? So if you're going to take this, this is great for multi-classing into warlock for these boons. If you clear it with your DM, because remember these are NPC boons. But yeah. if you can clear with your DM... And I would pick this up for someone that needs the con. One of your D8 melee fighters, like a cleric, which is kind of counterintuitive. Yeah. Or specifically a monk. I also like it for fighters as well because that movement and the constitution. Think about the hit points that are just skyrocketing when you do this. A cleric of Dweeblex would be a grave domain cleric? Life? Nature? Well, it's about consuming life. It's also, I don't think it's life. also about spreading its own its own version of life. Guess that's true. Grave is about preserving life and preserving the idea of life and death. Dweeblex is almost like it's sentient, but it just doesn't give a fuck. It it is the closest we've come to to an old god at this point. Yeah, I feel, I, and I feel like as close as we will get. Yeah, to an old to a great old one with a uh, fiend patron, right? Yeah, so. I really like Dweeblex. Dweeblex is a lot of fun. Um, I'm excited for a party to fight Dweeblex. Okay. Well, we're going to go from the least human to the most human of the Demon Lords. And that is with the Demon Lord, Gratzt. Uh, Gratzt is the Dark Prince, the the Lord of Pleasure and Indulgence. He lo- You have my entire attention. Yeah. Um, I don't want that much attention, Adam. At ease, soldier. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like me to leave? No. no. <laughs> Whole arm. <laughs> anyway, so uh, he rules three layers of the abyss, even though they're not layers anymore, but he rules well, three, three areas. Realms. Yeah, whatever um, you call it. Called Azagrat and lives in its central city, Zelatar. These are realms that are said to have been uh, dominated by him when he used to be a devil by the most popular lore. And the aspects of the abyss and the chaos of it um, transformed him from a devil who did not want to serve as Asmodeus to um, a demon prince. Um, he is the sexiest demon prince, and boy does he know it. He is tall, lithe, with dark obsidian skin and brilliant green eyes. He has a generally humanoid form. Um, but is got short little itty bitty devil horns and six fingers on each hand and each foot, as well as six smaller ittier bittier devil horns that go back through his flowing black hair. He's often dressed in the finest linens and silks. He's the god of banging. So like he he's he's gonna Oh like drums? No, no. Well I skin. I well, skin drums? Yeah, kinda, yeah. Okay, we should oh, I inverted my pentacle. <laughs> um, he wields a acid-drenched greatsword named Angdrelv, or the Wave of Sorrow. Those who have listened to the podcast... <laughs> That's your post-nut clarity right there. Um, those who have uh, listened to the podcast before know that I have I, I have a intelligent weapon I throw in all my campaigns. This is the greatsword that I would use as tetanus. Yeah. Right? It, it's just brilliant and corruption... Uh, based and it just seeks to corrupt and consume all around it. He is a powerful mage on top of being a powerful charmer. Now, do you figure his mage hand has six fingers? Probably, as well as several dicks. 
But who needs? He is the self-proclaimed most cunning and intelligent like in the cunning. Abyss. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's a very cunning uh, linguist, and he was imprisoned by some point by Tasha, where he probably used his cunning linguist skills, um, and was her lover for some time. Now, this is Tasha of the book that by this point has been released. No, not yet. Oh, it's coming. Is going. Is is coming. Yeah, it, Tasha's yeah. coming. Yeah, have soon. soon. Oh, we're almost there. To, we're almost at release time. Yeah, yeah. almost. Um, Just hold that a little longer. But uh, their union created the god Eus, who is a uh, another god of destruction. Now, Tasha has a whole podcast worth of information about her and who she is, where she... Yeah, where we'll cover her in another episode. Um, but basically, she is a hag wizard that charmed a demon prince and then eventually just let him go on her whim. So this is the level of Tasha that we're talking about here as well. Um, he is also able to transform to any shape at will, often favoring um, shapes that are pleasing to the eye of those who he's interacting with. Mostly because he wants to you know, take everyone to Bone Town, or Zelatar, as it's called here. Um, as a as his history, his creation, uh, there's a lot of different rumors about how he was created, how he became a demon prince. But as I said, the most popular and most likely is he was part of a devilish raid into the abyss, decided that he did not want to follow Asmodeus anymore, and rebelled and decided to rule the abyss instead. As for his cults, I mean, we've said it in very colorful words so far. It attracts those who want to fuck. And it says as much in the book. He is all about pleasure and orgies and indulgence to the max. He promises dark delights and forbidden ecstasies to his um, cultists. The only limits of which is uh, self-control and restraint. All right, I'm going to start holding up fingers. You tell me when to stop. All of them. Oh. Yeah. Oh, and he's got six on each hand. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's a, it's a bit... Um, however, with this, uh, um, with this very, I'm losing my words, sorry. Girth. No, but with this very uh, passionate form of a demon prince, a lot of poems and art and music and um, various other things come from the cultists and he, he targets the creatives. He really, really does. And, uh, like it, he's leaning into the bad boy. He shows up in a leather jacket. And... Oh yeah, I mean he he is uh, based on his art. He's wearing like a Roman legionnaire kilt. So this is like nineteen-year-old Terry roaming the campus. Yes, fake dyed hair, everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, he. You guys can call me grass. The, the fake tattoo sleeves. Yeah. 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 When his cults get together, he will often send an emissary to oversee uh, the... Blood orgy. Yes. Orgasms. Um, and it's usually that in the form of a Lamia or Merolith or a Succubi of some sort. A, a, a what you buy? A Succubi. Okay. Succubi. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Um, as for his madnesses, um, it's very prideful, it's very self-centered, and it's very sexual. Things like, nothing is more important to me than admiring my own reflection. Sorry, reflection. Sex is the great solution to literally all of life's problems. Preach. Yeah. Um, my appetite for delicious, pleasurable substances, note the phrasing, has no bounds. I'll do anything to get more. Uh, rumors spread easily, among other things, and I know many of them. Who cares if they're true? To honor my dark and beautiful lord, I must prepare intricate and debauched 
rituals. And uh, as, finally, anyone who doesn't do exactly what I say deserves no happiness. So yeah. this gives you the sense that this guy is all about kind of taking over his uh, minions' minds, their pleasures, and and ecstasy with no limit is, is basically his whole deal. Um, as for his mechanical boons that you could get, he gives a plus four to either charisma or constitution. His signature spells are false life, hold person. Hot. The sex god gets hold person. And what was the first one? Uh, false life. Not touching that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and fear. <laughs> yeah. The Lord of Forbidden Pleasure grants all of his cultists these abilities. They get joy from pain, which is whenever you... Uh, when this is not the only thing in D&D that does this. If you look into the Cult of Radkos stuff from um, Ravnica, there's a lot of that shit. Like this same yeah. theme in there as well. If, if you want to have a sex cult, it's probably going to be Gratz. Yeah. Right? It's gratifying. Yeah, thank you. Well done. Get the fuck uh, out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so all of his cultists get joy from pain, which is whenever you suffer a critical hit, you can make a melee weapon attack as a reaction. So you get hit, and you're so happy you're going to hit it back. Yeah, I'd hit that. Yep. Um, a cult leader is the master of pleasures, which uh, when this creature takes damage, it could grant five temporary hit points to itself and up to three allies within 30 feet. Okay. They don't need to be worshippers of Gretzt, like we've seen with other the, with other boons. This is just whenever they get hit. Me and my three best friends. Me I'll, and my three best friends I'll get five I'll say harder, temporary. daddy. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I mean... In terms of what pact to use for this guy, compact to the chain. <laughs> for obvious reasons, but pact of the blade as well. Like this guy is a martial dynamo, um, and the ability to waltz in and take the hits, and then be able to help feed your party temporary hit points every single time you get hit. Is that what you call it? Temporary hit points. Is that yeah, what you've named it. Yeah, yeah, just all over their yeah, chest and thighs. Anyway, this is like the most rated R episode we've ever done. I can't believe Terry and Brad aren't here. You yeah, think right? that this would have been there. I feel moment. uncomfortable. But a uh, campaign idea I want to do for this guy is a secret society has called your party to attend a ball that quickly yeah. descends. <laughs> <laughs> All right, continue. Descends into debauchery. Huh. Okay, thanks. Uh, the party must escape before the Merilith Herald finds them. And takes them for her own purposes. Which are what? Usually something involving six arms. Marilis are usually pretty warlike. I would have thought a Cybriax would have been good for this. Because everyone's just sprouting new appendages all over the place. I mean, a Cybriax would have been better with Dweeblex. Oh, I think that there's enough lubrication from a Cybriax to really help. Yucky. No? Yucky, yucky, yucky. No. Do you think the Gratz calls Dweeblex in just to help grease the social scenario? I, I would say yes, but uh, Gratz is definitely the guy who's got like the three 50-gallon pails of personal lubricant just sitting in his living room. He also calls those the slime pits. Yeah. <laughs> oh. We're making Dave turn green here with envy. It's your turn, Dave. How do you follow that up? Like, I think we need <laughs> yeah. to seriously feel these nibbles. <laughs> Nobody? No. So the next one I got is Zukit Moy. I'm sorry, uh, again? Zukit Moy. Okay. How do you pronounce it, Dan? Zukit Moy. I say Zukit Moy as well. You've got apostrophes in yours, Dave. Zukit Moy. 
there is no right way to do this. Like these you, are you say it like you are a late nineties attitude wrestler. Suck it, boy. Like that's Suck it, boy. Yeah. yeah. Not not quite. Zuck Tamoy. Zuck Tamoy. Okay. I feel like the way you you're a juggalo when you say it. Zuck it, boy. Yeah. Anyways. I, I like Zuck Tamoy because it's the only female demon lord. I mean, Gratz can kind of go. Well, Incubus, uh, can any Incubus and any uh, Succubus is really the same being. They just swap genders at a whim, right? Yeah. Like, Does it specify that Dweeblix is male? No, uh, it's neither. Sexless. Okay. Neither gender or no gender at all. So, Zugtomoy. Zugtomoy is the demon queen of fungi and the lady of rot and decay. So, the only female demon prince is a fungi. All right, check. I could say funguses if you'd like. Please don't. (laughs) That's what I thought. Please Um, do. It makes Adam twitch and that brings joy to my heart. It sounded to me like grass was a fungi. Or at least spreads fungi. More in the genital region as well. Well, we're going to talk about fungus now, Dave. And genital spores. Genital spores. Uh, Anyways, anyways. Um, She is the origin of all fungus and molds. Uh, And, I mean, that covers everything from, like, your typical mushrooms that you're going to be finding anywhere and everywhere. (laughs) Covers everything. To your yellow molds. From knees to nipples, including your mushroom. Looks like a hairy button. (laughs) We'll be putting a disclaimer on the beginning. Yeah, I think. So, like Grazd, did I say that right? Yep. Uh, she wants to join all creatures into one organism. Okay. Grazd wants to do it a little differently. Yeah, a little differently. Kind of in a human centipede way. Yeah, so this actually gave me some, like, Eric Cartman merging with the Trapper Keeper. Oh, yeah. Vibes, right? Like, just this moldy mushroom thing. Just enveloping all and like adding to itself and just becoming bigger and bigger and bigger and uh she's like the borg yes very much so yeah that's 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 a good comparison uh now most of her cultists don't want to or aren't knowingly or or willingly cultists they get infected with spores and uh start serving her because of that and they kind of become brainless and just kind of follow you know what they're told to do which gave me a real the Last of Us feel? Did either? Oh, yes, very much so, yeah. 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 Uh, which I thought was a kind of really spot on. Cultists are all clickers. Essentially. Yeah. Right? That could be something if you've got uh, friends that are into those kind of games, like a great way to grab their attention. Uh, and the other group of people that will worship her are uh, druids that want to see the end of civilization. You know, they're the, the outliers that want to... Circle they're, of Spores. They're the ones yeah. that go... Yeah, Circle of Spores, obviously. Like, they're the druids that take that um, anti-civilization bend way too far. Yeah. Exactly. You don't often see a druid warlock cross, but this thematically fits for me. Yeah, you absolutely could for this one. Uh, now, she lives in her palace on Shadakla. Yep. Which I just feel is Klingon for something. Uh, and it's just a, essentially this giant mushroom kingdom. Uh, Mario would feel at home here. Uh, the the whole city that she resides in her palace is twelve large mushrooms that have mushroom uh, bridges between them all, so they're all touching tips. Yep. They are surrounded by acidic puffballs uh, and poisonous vapor. I don't know how we're gonna get through this episode. No, it's gonna be bad. Dying. <laughs> you gonna make it? No, no, no. 
But, I mean, she is basically the be-all, end-all of fungus, right? Uh, in fact, her shape, she can kind of choose and f form what she wants to uh, based on what suits her. But she does tend to be more humanoid-looking than Dweeblix. She yeah. kind of rocks that Myconid She's look. got a really cool two-page spread. A, a lot of her like spread yeah. in the in the Mordenkainen's Tomophos. And you could see uh, Dweeblex behind her. Her big purpose is that she wants to infect all living creatures with spores to uh, further what I have dubbed her fungal factory. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. God, damn. Oh my god. But yeah, again, she can mold herself into into humanoid form. But I mean, she's got like like lichen and mycelia hanging off of her and stuff like it's when you say she molds into humanoid are you, are you saying a pun on purpose yes okay the boons you get for worshiping her are plus four to con but it's a minus four to intelligence wisdom and charisma same as dweeblix except not as much yeah only half as much yeah but same idea uh her spells are ray of sickness suggestion and plant growth and the ability you get is called spore kiss a uh, spore Kissed, which is similar to Dweeblix's, whereas uh, her followers are immune to Charmed and Frightened, but if they're reduced to zero hit points, creatures in a 10-foot radius take damage equal to the cultist's hit dice. Okay. Right, so same kind of idea. Uh, this is packed to the chain, and you give her a Myconid. Um, yeah, some sort of... Or, or even, you could go with anything, as long as it has like that mind-controlling fungus. Like a big fungus, fungal stem sticking out of its head, and then you can have any uh, familiar with this. Yeah, but I mean, it did like this is chain yes. through and through. Yeah, and I mean, we already mentioned it earlier, but uh, you split this with a spore druid, and yeah, you know, you're you're laughing. Uh, if I was going to uh, put her into a campaign, I would probably do something like the followers want to find her, or the party wants to find her to get her to wipe out the neighboring territory bad guys like this is not a good campaign no creature. definitely not uh and you know just go do the whole chemical biological warfare side of things on them there is a kind of demon called an i'm gonna butcher this alkalith alkalith something like that begins with an a and it is essentially a sentient fungus that grows around doorways and archways and creates portals to the abyss to summon demons in Cool. Yeah, and I feel like this is a direct result of um, of Zugtamoy's influence. Yeah, could be. I have a feeling it comes from the realm where Zugtamoy and Dweeblex are because it kind of has components of both of them put together. Oh, absolutely. You actually fought one of these alkalists, Dan. It was a pain in the ass. It really was. It kept uh, getting away and opening up more portals and bringing in more demons. And I believe that you guys had a total party kill fighting one of these guys. Yep. Well, that and the Merolith it summoned. Yeah, but the two of those fucked you guys up pretty good. Yep. Alkaliths spring from the cast-off bits of Dweeblix's hideous, shuddering body, then gradually become self-aware and set out to find their way onto the material plane. There we go. So it's a Dweeblix and not a Zugtamoy. Cool. Cool. All right, so we've left the two big papas for the very end of this. Um, and you guys each have one of them, so why don't you grab dice and... Roll for it. I'm going to sit back and be quiet. I got a six. Oh, you're going first because I got a five. Okay, well, you mentioned Big Papa. 
And, well, you can't get much bigger papa than Granddaddy Demon Prince himself, Orcus. Orcus is the prince of the, the demon prince of the undead. He is the blood lord. He seeks to end all life and replace it with undead, immoral everything. Um, he is evil to the core. He's, he's going to be the big bad boss. Uh, he sees life as noisy, crude, and distracting. He lives on Thanatos in the city of Neratir, where the inner walls are made of flesh and woven hair is your carpet. Cool. Yeah. Um, if you want but like does that metal. the carpet metal, match the drapes? Yes. If you want to have a like metal album campaign, send them to wherever Orcus is. Orcus himself looks like a gigantic ogre with the legs of a goat. The top half of his uh, ogre body is decayed, scarred, and flayed and bloated. Large bat wings and a head of a goat with the flesh rotted off are the other additions to him. He is a monstrous, rotting demon prince. He wields the infamous Wand of Orcus, which is a powerful artifact um, that, much like him, seeks to end all life and gives any sort of spellcaster any lots of joys in necromantic magics. His madnesses, for those who... Uh, spend too long around him are as edge lordy as they come you often become withdrawn and moody dwelling on the insufferable state of life so you're 14 so you're 14 um i'm compelled to make the weak suffer so you're 14 with an attitude problem yep i have no compunction against tampering with the dead in my search to better understand death which means i kill people yeah yeah I want to achieve the everlasting existence of undeath. Hey, if you have a lich in your campaign, guess who he worships? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? Um, he's got to be in direct opposition to the Raven Queen. Oh, very much so, yes. he uh, He's in direct opposition with pretty much everybody, uh, including a lot of the demon princes. Like, him and Zugtamoy do not get along. Well, none of the demon princes get along at all. Yeah. Um, but, no, the Raven Queen is all about preserving death and undeath is a perversion like it's personal with the two of them yeah yeah um orcus has a storied past in DD um being the big bad guy for several campaigns the focus of undeath like if this he is where undead comes from he is where the undead come from straight up across the board so um, his power level is immense. He has a challenge rating of 26. That's as big as it gets. Yeah. Um, those who worship him um, are come from any walk of life, but they typically hate the gods and want to see them brought down. They do not want to be beholden by the gods um, and are looking to reverse a death or, if they're more on the good side, are looking to reverse a death by any means necessary because of grief. A sorrowful father who has just lost his daughter. It's Pet Cemetery. Uh yeah, Pet Cemetery. This this is where you get that from. Any in the cult must be willing to become undead, which is usually ghouls or whites. Like he Orcus actively transforms his cult members into intelligent undead, but those with any sort of second thoughts or um hidden purposes or missions in their worship of Orcus are uh, destroyed and raised as the lowest form of undead, the main, the mindless undead of zombies and skeletons. Yeah. Um, he is vindictive and cruel um, and just seeks to wipe out all life in the entire universe. 
those who uh, worship him can expect boons of a plus four bonus to int or wisdom or both. Uh, you get an undying soul as your base level, which is another one of your, if you get to negative hit points, you pop back up once per rest. Um, you get an aura of death, which is a 30 foot uh, aura where friendlies become immune to the frightened condition and are resistant to radiant damage. And enemies within that 30 foot bubble are uh, roll death saves with disadvantage. That aura is game breaking. With that disadvantage on death saves. There's not a whole lot that does that. And him having that as an aura that he can bestow on somebody. Um, makes fighting a cult of Orcus freaking scary. As a campaign idea. the um, I would have cultists that have infiltrated a parks and rec board in a city. And have slowly started to poison the water supply. Causing lethargy. That ends with being raised as a zombie horde. And your party must find it out. How does he feel about the other demon lords? Hates them all. Even Grast? Hates them all. Ah, that's too bad. No he, no porcus for the Orcus? No porcus for the Orcus. He doesn't care about that. It's probably fell off and rotted away long ago. He he is all about undeath. For him, honestly, I like Packet the Chain for the same reason as everything else. Oh, uh, all that spellcasting shit, the the but, modifiers and stuff. I mean, it feels tome. If you go tome, I mean you get all that necromancy spells, you you yeah. go on the necromancy side, but having Pact of Chain and giving him some any real thing, just making it an undead uh, familiar, right? It it really fits him. And, like, he's big, he's gross. You can never go wrong making Orcus your big bad guy. But as a big good guy? As a big papa? That, that As a big papa? As your sugar daddy? He is he's going to be looking for you to end life. And he is smart enough to know that if you save this life now, you can end more lives later. Okay. Right? So I could see a good... Warlock of Orcus slowly being twisted to evil. Cool, cool, yeah. cool, cool. And that's that's Orcus. Uh, so for the last one, we've got, of course, yeah, <clears throat> we've got the and there's like a hundred different ways to say this. The Demogorgon. Sure. Did I get that one right? I say Demogorgon, but you go nuts. I say I see Demogorgon. It's yeah, it's Demogorgon, Demogorgon, Demogorgon. Uh, there's also I found I came across a. Demogregan, Demogregan. All right, that was one of the pronunciations I found. Well, they're wrong. They are wrong, but like, <laughs> there's just a hundred of them, right? So you can't really, you can't get it wrong. We just proved that, but most of them are okay. Uh, he is the prince of demons. He is a being of uninhibited violence and rage. He just wants to make things die. Yep. Right. Uh, now he's this big weird looking monstrosity of a guy he's got almost like uh lizardy bottom half with like big claws and webbed feet uh he's got an ape-like torso his arms split into two tentacles he's got a big pointy tail and he's got two ape-like heads but also kind of wolf-like they're supposed to be mandrills traditionally um but the fifth ed art doesn't give that impression no no the the picture in mordenkainen's makes me think of uh, Reza from uh, yeah, Secret yeah, of the yeah. Use. Yeah. yeah, okay. Right? Uh, that kind of like deformed wolf thing. But there's two of them. Their names are Amul and Hathradaya, but I have shortened that to Adam and Dan. That makes sense. Yeah, cool. Uh, you can be the one on the left because I'm always right. That tracks. Uh, now, uh, his ultimate goal is to rid the Fuck multiverse you. of all life, which includes his followers, which again, Adam and Dan, it tracks. Yeah, yeah. Right? And. They see every 
or he sees every creature as a target. And the only way to escape once he's locked onto you is to degrade yourselves in some way. Which again, Adam and Dan. Adam and Dan. Yeah, I have to bring them coffee. Um, Brad, let's not even get into that one. Yeah, how do you spell male and male slave, Brad? Right? That's yeah. a question. And let's not forget... Scary Terry. Totally normal Megan. She's the only one that scares us. Right? Now, once he gets rid of all of his uh, followers and everything, um, he can finally put his paranoia to rest. That's his big thing. People are coming to get him. Everyone wants to overthrow him. He's going to get... The only way he's ever going to achieve that is if he kills everybody. Literally everybody. Yes, and some people think, like in lore, uh, that once he does this, he will actually get rid of himself as well and just kind of make everything go away. So so he is about obliteration. Not like Orcus, who's about an existence of undeath. Demogorgon's just about... One is about tyranny, the other is about oblivion. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, yeah. good way to put it. Uh, now, if... You are unfortunate enough to come across this CR-26 creature. Before anything happens, you're going to go mad. Yep. Oh, just ask uh, Megan. She went toe-to-toe with him in our last campaign. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Did not go well. Yeah, it didn't go well. Uh, well, some of the some of the madness here. Someone is plotting to kill me. I need to strike first to stop them. There's only one solution to my problem. Kill them all. Uh, there's more than one mind inside my head. I like that one. Uh, if you don't agree with me, I'll beat you into submission to get my way. That's Adam, Terry. No. That's Terry. The submission part is. Yeah. But uh, if you don't agree with me, I'll get my way. That's... that's. I just want everyone else to be right, too. And the last one is, I can't allow anyone to touch anything that belongs to me. They might try to take it away. Now, any one of those, at any level, will severely fuck up a party. Yes. Right? And True. That's, I mean, that's kind of the point of them, but it's... I, I like that. It's wonderful. Now, it's not just looking at the Demogorgon that will make you go mad, but also just looking at its sigil. The symbol of it will, will just start making you go crazy. Uh, so you don't even need to be, you know, where he lives, which is abysm, abysm, A-B-Y-S-M, which is on the gaping maw layer of the, well, not layer. Yes, Dan, gaping maw. <laughs> You're so immature. Right? Uh, if you are a follower... Uh, you get a plus four to strength or charisma or both. Uh, the spells you would get are charm person, enlarge, reduce, huh, uh, and vampiric touch. Fuck off, Dan. Well, you're ruined, Dan. <laughs> hey, came that way. Did he? I bet he did. <laughs> and, and the ability, I bet he did too. <laughs> oh, fuck. Jesus. This what episode. Is, what is this? Uh, Our Halloween special, thank God, thank God Halloween only comes once a year. Unlike, Unlike rats. rats. <laughs> Go home. <laughs> if you are a follower, the last ability you get is called Two Minds of Madness, which essentially just gives you advantage on intelligence, wisdom, and charisma saving throws. That makes sense, because you have a little Adam Devil and a little... Uh, Dan Angel on your shoulders telling you things and that gives you, you advantage on intelligence. You really struggled to say Dan Angel, didn't you? No. That was really hard for you to say. No. So what pack is this motherfucker? Uh, blade. He's violence. Blade. Just easy. I don't know. Pack to the blade. Uh, pack to the tome with him as well would fit. It depends on which spells you're going to take. Evocation. The, well, I mean, there's a lot of illusion and enchantment. Ooh, yeah. I guess... 
So it depends how far up, honestly, the warlock table you're going to go. Because you've got to struggle to get your 6th, 7th, and 8th level spells. And those are the big, scary, awesome ones yeah. for, um, for your enchantment. And when you get to that level, that's really going to fit the, the cult of Demogorgon. However, your low-level warlock is going to be kind of meh. Meh, yeah. Just right. kind of a crazy, bloodthirsty murder hobo. So a low-level adventure yeah. in Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, if I was going to use this guy in a campaign hook, it would be easy. They would track his followers and then walk into their temple, see the symbol, and go mad, and then not really know what they're doing afterwards. And, you know, just if my party is pissing me off and I want to end a campaign, this is the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this guy can make your campaign end like Real that. quick, yeah. It could just, like, again, you don't even need to encounter him, right? It it says something to the power of him. One, that he is the demon prince of demons. Yeah. And and two that he is the demon prince of basically madness. Like I like the in idea. terms of the insanity of the abyss, it is embodied in Demogorgon. I like the idea of them saying, "And what's your title?" And the first it says the demon prince, and the second one says prince of demons, and they just mashed it together and send it out. Yeah. Okay, let's grab dice. Which one is your favorite for a warlock? If you were going to play a warlock, now what's your favorite um, patron or uh, demon lord? But yeah. specifically as a warlock patron. I got a nine. I got a thirteen. I got an eight. Oh my god! I don't know. I do fucking love the crazy bullshit that is Dweeblex. Really, not Yinogu? I love Yinogu, but Yinogu, you just become a null over time. I have trouble getting three weeks into the campaign and not having you be a slavering idiot. Okay, Dweeblex, you're crazy batshit. You get all this weird pluses and minuses. You are going to have such a unique melee combatant with a worshiper of Dweeblex. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to get anything like that. The plus eight to con, minus eight to mental stats. The ability to move through those tight, narrow spaces. You're just going to slurp your way through keyholes and under doors and through cracks and windows. And like, there's a lot of cool, interesting things that you can do with that. Everyone will remember your character, but you're not going to be a big-ass, badass spellcaster. You're no. just going to be able to live forever. So if you were to cross-class into Barbarian, oh, that con. Oh, yeah. Right? You're you're living forever. Especially if you take the Zealot, right? You're just... you. Ah, I love it. Yeah. I think it's a lot of fun. So that's uh, that's my answer. I really like Dweeblex for the, the multi-class potential there and remember you don't actually get these boons stock you've got to get this from you, your dm you, you have and you have to be a worshiper of that demon prince yeah you gotta earn this which means you you have to earn it which is any list of messed up rituals and things that are going to make any table uncomfortable i'm gonna say honestly that absolutely anyone worshiping a uh demon lord is going to have to be true neutral Chaotic evil. Chaotic neutral. Yeah, or true evil, like neutral, neutral evil. evil. Yeah. Right? And so that's it. You're not going good or lawful, period. Any of the other four are fine. Even chaotic good are going to have real trouble with you following a demon lord. I think that that, that that interesting conflict that that would bring with your character, having made this pact with a demon and now they're imposing their will and giving you these boons and you have to do what they're saying, but you're trying to make it as good as possible. You're fighting that urge you're fighting that i don't see you going through these rituals like i'm assuming that you're multi-classing in partway through the campaign you're going through all these rituals to get this far you're not in the good scale 
I, 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 from that perspective, I, I understand what you're saying. If you start a character as a warlock of the, of you this, and your damned redemption arcs, damn. I like it, man. It, it fits, and I like good characters. I, I, and that's what I like to play. So, um, for for me, for that reason, man, like, I'm, I'm, I debate between Gratz and Orcus. I do. Um, Gratz brings a uncomfortable sex thread to a campaign. You can't have him at every table. You can't have him at every table. So, like, definitely play him sparingly. Or under but, every table. But Orcus as well, like, I could see a good player of Orcus having made that deal with him. In order to get revenge in some moments of hate or 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 whatever it was. And then fighting its way back. But if you're going an evil warlock, man, you can't go wrong with Orcus. You can't. No, I think he's one of the more standard ones. Right. Baphomet and Yanagi are pretty... Um, they're problematic. The, they're problematic, but they're also the same. And if you're in a party, they're gonna cause issues. Orcus will work with a party. Uh, I'm gonna say the difference is barbarians will go Yinagu, and artificer will go Baphomet. If you're gonna multi-class, uh, Baphomet is also savage and brutal. Yeah, but also invents and plays and yeah, I guess twists, that's true. Yeah. Right. So, anyway, Dave, I like Fraz. Like I like the idea of uh, injecting a layer of illusion. That you as a DM are tracking that your players just aren't aware of, you know, like having that kind of underlying getting getting them to do your dirty work while uh, while they're unaware, and then have it corrupt them later, make them see things in one way, but then you know make them have that are we the bad guys moment. I've done that in every single campaign. My players would be totally fucking on to me at that point. Yeah. But I think most people have... That would be something really interesting to pull the wool or pull the rug out from underneath them, right? Yeah. Um, you got to be really careful, though, if you're going to if you're gonna fuck with the party. But as yeah, because you're taking a lot of agency. But, but as a warlock patron, which one do you like the best? If you were going to play a warlock, which one are you praying to? I mean, Orcus is just easiest. It's yeah. the most... Streamlined, it just makes a lot of sense. It's less maintenance. Yeah, you're not dealing with a lot of the crazy bullshit that comes with Demogorgon or or any of the nonsense that comes with uh, Zugtmoy or Dweeblex where you got to really think about your character build mm-hmm. going into it. Yeah, and even the spells are useful. Useful, like they're they're good. Yeah, Orcus is really set up to be the the real demon lord yeah. that's supposed to be a patron. The rest are really fun and really cool. Um, do we have any final thoughts before we wrap it up? I mean, this is a drop in the pond for for them. So there, there's more out there than this. Um, so and this is only one side of the fiend patron yeah, coin, right? Right. Like we've one got of three. Three. I mean, if you could find any non-devil, non-demon fiends, that could be patrons as well—a high-level Raxasha or something. Yeah, you could go that way. But yeah. for the most part, they actually say specifically demon lords. And Archdevils in the lore. Yeah. And so um, stay tuned a year from now and we'll do Archdevils. <laughs> That's it for this Halloween special on Demonic Warlock Patrons. The It's a Mimic podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and most podcast apps. So please like, follow, subscribe, or whatever on each app you use. Comments and reviews are helpful too. And of course, you can head over to www.itsamimic.com to donate if you feel so inclined. Thank you very much for listening and have a happy and safe Halloween.
Okay, so there's actually a really cool thing in the end of the um, Blood War chapter yep. in Mordenkind is where you get to build your own demon and your own cult. Um, and so I kind of wanted to get into this. I wanted to roll dice to see. We'll go in order. Let's build something sure. off of the random table to see what we can come up with besides one of the demon lords for someone to worship. I'm, I'm, I'm on board with this, yeah. All right, let's grab dice, and I'll, I'll walk you guys through it. I got a 7. I got a 17. I got a 9. All right, so we're going to start with Dave, and we're going to go counterclockwise yep. around the table. So the very first thing that I want you to do, Dave, is grab a D8. Yep. And we're going to roll for which of the other high-level um, demons are there. I grabbed the top 8, not including the Krokokotoic, because it's already closely tied to Yanagu. Anyway. Yeah, fair enough. Right, so um, that's the Malidius, Baylor, Sibriex, Goristro, Merilith, Nabasu, Wastrolith, and Nalfashni. So let's roll and see which one. Let's roll it in the box. Uh, this is a problem grass doesn't have. Five. That's a Merilith. So that was uh, a Merilith. And I'm going to roll a d6 for where in the Forgotten Realms we're going to drop her. Uh, number five. We're going to drop her in Chult. Oh. A Merilith. Well, you're snaky themed. Yeah, that, 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 that tracks. That's okay. Okay, so Dan, roll a d6 for the Demon Personality Trait. Three. This is right out of the book. The first two I kind of created, but here we go. I fawn over others to make my betrayal more unexpected. Okay. Dave, give me another D6. Five. Ambition. This is the demon ideals. We reach the station in the cosmos that we deserve due to our drive and talents. So this is an ambitious Merilith dropped in the middle of Chult that is okay with playing the slow game. Yep. Um, I would normally roll demon bonds, but there's only one option. If you roll a one to six on a D6, I am a perfect product of creation destined to one day shape the cosmos to my whims. Everything I do verifies my destiny. Every demon believes that apparently. If you're going to be powerful, cool. yeah, if you're going to be powerful enough to have worshipers, this is where you come from. So I'm going to roll for demon flaws. Another D6. I, what do I get? I occasionally a pet five. kitties. I rage, but I use anger to distract from my fear of confrontation. Makes sense for someone playing the slow game, but does it make sense for Merilith? Oh, I don't know. Merilith are sneaky smart. They're cunning. Yeah, okay. All right. Now, we're each going to roll an unusual demon feature in the same order. So, Dave, you go first. Three. Ever open extra eye. The demon gains advantage on perception checks related to sight. Silver bones. The demon's natural weapons are considered silvered. All right, Wolverine. Nine. Endless mumbling second mouth. The demon suffers disadvantage on stealth checks against creatures that can hear. So playing the long game, it has one mouth that's always going, but is aware of everything. There's a paranoia here. And then I like the rage that's covering the yeah. fear of confrontation as well. Okay, that brings us now to its cult. Dave. Numero uno. Political power is its goal. Control over the local area. Over Chultz means you are going over Portney and Zaru. That is what you want to control. Yep. Um, next is for me, um, for cult, cult resources. resources. The cult has access to a cache of powerful magic. You have found the uh, Tomb of Annihilation. Sure. Damn. Yeah, cool. Give us the organization. Six. Entrenched. The cult is part of the local culture, a tradition that established decades ago and kept secret from outsiders. So it's powerful. And Dave, bring us home with the cult hardship. Four. Murder and betrayal leads to constant turnover in cult leadership. 
I mean, you're run by Marilith. This is really fun. This could, I mean, we just don't have a name, but all we need now is a name, and we've got something that can go toe-to-toe with the cults for any of the demon lords, right? That's so much fun. Now, the fiendish cults in Mordenkainen's, those um, four D6 tables, those can apply to the demons or the devils. Yep. But uh, the first handful that we rolled were were just about the demons, so... That's, I don't know, that's a lot of fun. I really like that. I like building, I like building your own. And, and like, when you consider that the abyss is endless, that it is absolutely infinite, makes sense. That there would be this one Merolith that runs this one layer uh, or this one section of the abyss that is all about jungles, weirdly enough. And, like, the awareness of jungles. Oh, I'm going to run away with this. How do you follow that up? Like, I think we need <laughs> yeah. to seriously feel these nibbles. <laughs> Nobody? No. I'm just Brad. Brad had touched my nips. <laughs> and that's the soundbite of the episode. <laughs> that's the title of the episode. <laughs> oh, warlock patrons, Brad would touch my nips. And we're done. <laughs> Back it up, go home, guys. We're done. Yeah, we have peaked. Oh. Fuck.